Mark 1, beginning in verse 1, Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and all those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Father, we just ask as always for the grace and the help of your Spirit's ministry that we might have an ear to hear and just be receptive uh, to allow your spirit this morning to speak through what you have spoken here in the word of God. So prepare us, Lord, and speak to us now by your spirit's ministry. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, even as it is certainly important to not only finish, but to finish well, and even as it is important to stay faithful and remain committed between the start of something and the finish of something, it is also very important to begin well. That is to start properly when something begins to have a good beginning. We might say a, a, a good takeoff, a good takeoff to ensure the remainder of the flight goes as planned. Well, God being a good steward, as he works and unfolds his plan, he cares about things having a good start, about them having a really healthy and a right beginning. And that is what we really see in our text. I find here a really great beginning to Jesus's earthly ministry. And as Mark's gospel opens up, that's what begins to become clear to us. Now, a little bit of backdrop as we start this new book study together, and particularly the Gospel of Mark. Mark will see ops to begin with his record of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus, uh, covering really his adult life beginning at his public ministry as the Messiah and as the Savior. So because of that, we'll see Mark does opt in, in his kind of record here. He doesn't record anything about Jesus' birth of his early childhood, like we get in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Rather, he starts right out with what transpired at Jesus's public ministry, which our Lord began around the age of 30. And it's important to understand the unique approach to the four different gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them serve by the Holy Spirit's purpose to give a complementary or we might say a fuller record of the earthly life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came into this world from heaven to reveal God to mankind living among us as a man in the flesh as he sought to humbly serve, to teach, and to heal, to sacrifice for our sins, to overcome the power of death, 
to ascend back into heaven where he now reigns. And each writer of the four Gospels was led by the Spirit to write from a unique perspective, all seeking to give a complementary and fuller account of these things, but with a set purpose in mind. If I could illustrate in some way, it would be, for example, if an auto accident happened at a particular intersection, and as the police arrive, they get different witnesses to give perhaps their account of what they saw in the auto accident from their vantage point and perspective. So if someone's over here on the southeast corner, they may have saw certain details, and from their perspective, they can give account to certain things. Maybe someone who is sitting on a different corner location, they saw certain things from their vantage point. They all saw the same thing. They all witnessed the same events, if you would, but they might give different unique details from what they saw from their particular vantage point and what they observed. Well, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very similar in that way that some details of Jesus' life are exactly the same in the gospel accounts. And then as you read other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you find certain unique details that maybe are in one gospel account that are not supplied in the other gospel accounts, things that were seen and spoken of from that particular writer's vantage point. But all of them give the fuller or complete picture of everything regarding our Lord's life. Matthew, we know specifically, trying to reach the Jewish people, presents Jesus as the predicted Messiah of the nation of Israel. And so in Matthew's gospel, you find way more quotations to the Old Testament than you do in any of the other gospel accounts, because Matthew was really trying to prove to the nation of Israel, this is the deliverer. This is the Messiah that we know our Old Testament prophets spoke about, and he's trying to present Jesus in that way. Luke writes from the perspective, remember, Luke was a physician. So Luke, being a physician, was astonished with the humanity of Jesus. And so Luke really writes from that angle. He portrays a lot about the humanity of our Lord being God, but really emphasizing the humanity of him as the son of man, trying to reach the Greek mind that he was particularly writing from. John's gospel is the gospel that's focused on the deity of Jesus. He really tries to present Jesus strongly as the son of God and, and the signs and wonders that Jesus did uh, and the I am statements. And he really tries to purposely portray Jesus very clearly as his deity, as God dwelling in human flesh. And then Mark's gospel, which we're now beginning, is the shortest of all the Gospels, and Mark's real emphasis, trying to write, it seems, to the Roman mind, is to present Jesus as a humble servant, and to try and portray Jesus as that humble servant of God ministering on the earth. And so Mark focuses, we'll see, more on what Jesus did and less on what Jesus said. There's a lot more in Mark's Gospel about Jesus' actions and his ministry than Jesus' teachings and things that he spoke. And we'll see that Mark's gospel moves very rapidly from event to event to event to event. He doesn't spend a long time. He writes very quickly, kind of in snapshots, kind of passing from one event to another. It's a very simplistic gospel, and it's a gospel that has a lot of action involved in it. In fact, you'll notice as we go through, one word repeatedly shows up. It's the word immediately. 
Over 40 times, Mark keeps using that word. And then immediately this happened, and immediately then that happened. And he keeps transitioning very quickly. So it's a really great gospel to read if you want a quick overall snapshot of the life of Jesus. A lot of times if somebody's not familiar with the Bible or they've just gotten saved, I'll encourage them to read the Gospel of Mark. There's not all the genealogies in it. And and it's just a very simplistic account of the life of our Lord from start to finish. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit's pen being utilized to record this book of Scripture, as we can see, the Gospel according to Mark. He's also referred to as John Mark in the New Testament as well. And it seems that Mark was a teenager, as far as his age, during the time of Jesus' public ministry, probably about 15 or so years younger than what Jesus was. So he's a teenager during the time the public of ministry of Jesus is at its zenith. And it's a very beautiful thing, because as a teenage young man, he develops a real heart for the Lord, and he becomes committed to Jesus and starts walking with the Lord as a young teenager, and he really wants to serve the Lord in the younger years of his life. And instead of wasting his youthful years trying to be cool and to be carnal, instead he chooses to be committed to Christ and to walk with Jesus as a young man desiring to be used by the Lord. He wants to participate in the work of the kingdom of God and help others know the Lord. It seems that Mark had a close personal connection to the apostle Peter as kind of a mentor in his life. And much of what Mark learned about the life and the accounts of Jesus came from firsthand account, of course, of the apostle Peter, who went around traveling with Jesus very closely. Many say Mark's gospel really is the gospel of Peter, because it really is a lot of what Peter would have conveyed to Mark uh, in sort of their relationship they had. So later in his life, Mark takes up the pen and records his own account being used by the Spirit to give us this gospel account of the life of our Lord. Now, Something very interesting about Mark as well, encouraging to remember as we're remembering the human author behind these things coming forth on the page to us, is that Mark really was a very imperfect man as a servant of the Lord. And that's a great encouragement if you think about God selects him to write one of the Gospels, because we know from the book of Acts that Mark's family's home was a gathering place for Christians, We also know from the book of Acts that Mark, being a very spiritually zealous young man, joined up, remember, with Paul and Barnabas as their assistant as they went about doing their missions work, planting churches, going around preaching the gospel, taking missions journeys from different city to city. At some point, as Mark is traveling with them in that work as their assistant, things got hard. Imagine that in missions work. For those of you getting ready to go on a trip to a third world country, imagine that. Difficulty on the mission field. Imagine the ministry not always being easy, church planning and plowing up new ground and trying to you know, get a work off the ground and see God's spirit begin to take root and the word of God begin to bear fruit and there's spiritual warfare and hassles and challenges and difficulties. And at some point as things got difficult and challenges arose as a part of that ministry work, the book of Acts tells us that Mark, it seems not able to handle the pressure, he basically quit he abandoned the team, and he went back home. 
Now, the book of Acts tells us that when they went back out again later on, as Paul and Barnabas were about to go out and do some more missionary work and church planning, on the next trip, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along to assist, and Paul refused. And they had this really sharp dispute. They ended up parting company, and Paul was so adamant he did not want to take John Mark along because Paul did not want to jeopardize the work of the Lord by bringing along someone who had proved to be unreliable because Paul was very stern on faithfulness. It's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Paul told Timothy, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach and to minister. Other. So Paul was very adamant. He, he was unreliable, and I can't take the chance. And so he, he, in a sense, lets Barnabas go his way. Barnabas, we know, takes John, it seems, under his wing, John Mark, minister to him, mentors to him. And here's the beautiful thing. After many years of growth and further mentorship, Mark reconciles with Paul, and Paul ultimately says of Mark at one time in the New Testament, hey, go and get Mark. He's useful to me for the ministry. And what a beautiful thing to see this gospel record right here, the gospel of Mark, is living proof that after failure, God can still use someone, that God can still work through lives, even if they stumble or struggle or falter under the pressure even. Again, what a wonderful thing, a great testimony. Those who fail may be early in ministry. Maybe those who stumble because of immaturity and they can't, or maybe they prove to be unreliable at a particular season that they can in due time learn from their errors. They can grow through humility and further opportunity and time to mature. And eventually there's great hope that a bad takeoff in the past or a failed attempt maybe earlier on does not mean a good future is not attainable. But by growth and maturity and giving second chances to people, they can turn around and become very useful individuals if we're willing to let that process happen. And Mark's life is characterized by failure, then by growth, then by proving to be a very useful vessel of the Lord and even someone the Spirit used to record one of the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament later in his life. I say that to say this this morning. If the Holy Spirit ministers to you in this book of the Bible, be really, really thankful that this young man, Mark, after his failure, humbly kept going, and he learned, and he grew, and he became useful to the Lord in a season down the road because he didn't wallow in self-pity, and he didn't get angry and resentful that the Apostle Paul forced him to grow up and to mature, and to be humbled a little. And because he had a right heart and continued to carry onward, God ultimately brought him around in a later season. He grew and he matured, and ultimately the Holy Spirit selected him of the four men that were chosen to give us a record of our Lord Jesus' ministry. Well, verse 1, Mark's gospel begins by telling us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So Mark opens stating that he wants to tell us how this great news of Jesus' life and earthly ministry had its start, how it had its beginning, he says. 
The gospel, of course, is a word that just means good news, that it's a proclamation of great victory. A gospel, an evangelical message in the original term was just going around and, and, and declaring a great victory, good news, something to celebrate that was worth rejoicing over. And so celebrating the gospel, the good news of the great things that God began to do in sending, he says, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, his earthly name, Jehovah, is salvation. Christ is not his last name. If you haven't figured that out yet, that refers to his mission. He was the Christos in the Greek or the Hebrew, the, the Mashiach, the Messiah. So that word Christ references his mission. He was the anointed chosen Messiah from the Old Testament. The Greek is just the term Christos. So, of course, it's translated as Christ, the promised one God sent. And he also tells us there in verse 1 that he was the son of God, that he was God the son together, always eternally existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit reigning there in eternity for all time, but sent into this world to live humbly as a human, as a man, to be a mediator between God and mankind, to enter into this world to reveal God and to save us from our sins. And you know what? That is indeed some really good news. That's some really great news, that God would do such a thing for us in our lost sinful condition. And look, we live in a world today, do we not, folks, that is filled with what? Bad news. I mean, that is, that's all that's broadcast. Every media outlet, uh, it seems today, you know, every conversation, everybody's just always talking about all the bad news, all the horrible stuff that's going on. And no wonder everybody in society is so bummed out and depressed and anxious and overwhelmed. That is why is our, in our country, America, we lead the world pharmaceutically with drugs for depression and anxiety in America. And everybody's bummed out and depressed and discouraged and we're stressed out. How wonderful in the midst of all the bad news to actually be a few advocates out in the society to say, hey, I actually have some good news we could talk about. There is some good news, and could I share that with you? And, and there is some good news that we can perhaps steer a conversation towards to talk to people about Jesus and who he is and what he's done on occasion. And Mark wants to tell us how this wonderful plan and predicted mission is accomplished, how it all began, how the beginning came to pass, Jesus' public ministry. Here's how it all began, as he begins in verse 2. As it is written in the prophets... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So notice the ministry of Jesus began, Mark tells us, both with a time of preparation, a time of preparation in people's hearts, and it also began Jesus' ministry in accordance with the word of God. Here Mark records for us, quoting as a reference point to what he's about to talk about and show how it's built on the word of God, he quotes portions from the prophecy of both Malachi chapter 3 as well as Isaiah chapter 40, which both predictively promised 
how before the Messiah came, before God sent the Savior into the world, a forerunner, as we might call it, would come on the scene first before the King of Kings to prepare the way for his arrival, to get things ready for the best possible entry for the Son of God to come into the world for the start of his ministry so that people would be most prepared to receive him as his ministry began. And look, what's described here in this quotation from the Old Testament was a very common practice in the ancient culture to prepare the pathway before a king would come in among a group of people. A messenger would typically come first to announce that the important king was coming, that he was going to arrive soon, and then it would be encouraged that preparation should be made to make the pathway from where he was coming from to where they were ready so that it was as easy as possible for him to arrive and so that the people had the best opportunity to be ready to receive him easily as he came around. Isaiah chapter 40, as I mentioned, which is a portion of what Mark is quoting here in verses 2 and 3, Isaiah 40 says this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and he says, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places made straight, and the rough places made smooth. And what that's describing, as I just said, that's exactly what they would do if a king was coming. Hey, there's some, some valleys in that passageway. We need to fill that in and level it out so that their chariot doesn't get stuck in that pothole. And there's some mounds of dirt, and so they would go out and they would and they would do everything they could to make the ground level and straight, so that it was a nice highway for the king to come in very easily, out of honor for him, and so that he could have a good pathway in the beginning, and that they were the most prepared possible to be able to receive the king. So as the king came to them, they could benefit from his arrival. And this is the picture here in a spiritual sense that God's describing, that in the same manner spiritually, God being a good steward predicted through the prophets, through Isaiah, through Malachi, through others, that he was going to send one as a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus' coming, to come before him as the king of Israel to get things ready for his entrance so that people could receive him as the greatest ruler. And it was written down in God's word promised hundreds of years before our Lord ever arrived on the scene. Verse 2, he says, I will send my messenger before your face. That's the father speaking to the son. I I'm going to do this. Just like any other king on the earth is worthy of it, God says to the son, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So God was sending a messenger first, before Jesus' identity as the Christ would be revealed as he came to mankind, God's promised son as the king of the Jews, preparation, the father said, would be made for him. A servant would go prepare the way. And he said that servant would prepare the way of the Lord and that he would be a voice, it says, for God crying out in the wilderness. So that messenger that came before Jesus, the forerunner, his role was noticed just to be a humble faithful messenger, he's described as a voice, just a voice, just a voice 
delivering news, crying out in great concern for the people's souls to get ready for this coming king and savior. And his main message was to passionately instruct people to be ready spiritually so that they could be as receptive as possible to encounter the Lord and to receive the king, King Jesus, when he came. Notice the message he was to declare. It's right there in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This was his message according to Scripture. What his message was to be, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight or make a straight pathway for him to enter into your life. That's what the messenger was to do, to speak the message God wanted declared, serving as God's voice. He was not to say what impressed the people, he was to say what instructed the people to hear what God was trying to say to them. That was his job, just to be a voice and just to be God's voice to say what God wanted spoken as he was selected and sent and empowered to help people connect with God. And the way to recognize this forerunner, if they were following the prophecies of the Old Testament, how can we recognize when this forerunner comes to prepare the way for the Messiah? Well, God said you'll be able to identify him because he says he will be operating and ministering in alignment with the word of God. He said right there, the messenger I send, how can you identify him? He'll be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, telling people to get ready and be prepared for the coming of the Lord, of the Savior. Again, take notice. He would be operating in alignment with God's word and what it instructed. He would not be in a big city. He would not go to Jerusalem the central place where everything was happening. He would not, per se, be in the best location. He would be actually out in the obscure Judean wilderness, a desert-like area, not drawing attention to himself, but humbly seeking to be God's voice to help people get right with God and connect with God. And I tell you, by way of application, I look at these initial verses here, and it's a good reminder to us that whenever God works and it is truly a work of God by his spirit, these are two things that should be clearly identifiable, and this is how God works by his spirit. First of all, in accordance and in alignment with his word. That's how God works. God's spirit, as God's spirit works, works in accordance and alignment with the truths of the word of God, the principles of the word of God the promises of the word of God, not according to the patterns of worldly culture, but according to the promises and principles and truths of God. That's how God's spirit works. And when God's spirit works as well, the secondary thing we will see happen, even it happened here, is God will be preparing both circumstance and people to be ready before his work happens. He'll be preparing people and he'll be preparing the circumstances, as even here, this messenger was to prepare the way. And let me say, when a work begins as well, a fresh work of God, a new work of God, not only how do we identify a work of God, but when there's a new work about to begin, it should be started with that approach. It should be started in alignment with the word of God, in accordance with the truths of God's word. And it should be started in a way whereby we realize God must first prepare the circumstances. We can't force that. And God must prepare the people 
who are involved in that to be ready for what God is about to do in his work. That's his responsibility. Now, Mark goes on to tell us how God began this ministry of Jesus, sending that chosen messenger to prepare the way as he goes on. He now tells us how the prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then, watch this, all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, they went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And then he identifies John saying that he was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts. We might think of grasshoppers. That's kind of the idea there, locusts, grasshoppers, and wild honey. Now, notice a few things. First of all, notice who God selects to function as his servant in fulfilling this very important work. Would you agree? Sending the Son of God into the world, getting things ready for Jesus. And look who God selects, this man. He's described in verse 6, birth, uh, the description of him as well as his dress and his diet. This man who we've come to know, we often call him John the Baptist, or perhaps better to call him John the Baptizer, who comes following the calling of God upon his life. And notice, as he's described there in verse 6, as someone wearing a camel's hair cloak with a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Notice, this man, God selects as a servant, he's not dressed in fancy clerical robes like the high priests in Jerusalem, looking very ornately spiritual, not looking real official, doesn't look real impressive. He's wearing camel's hair as a tunic, tied together with a leather belt. Again, I may be dating myself a little bit here, but to me, I look at John the Baptist, and in my picture, he's like the ancient version of Captain Caveman. You remember Captain Caveman? <laughs> That's what I picture John the Baptist. He's like the ancient version of Captain Caveman out there. He's very rustic, rough around the edges. I mean, this guy is clearly, he's not a polished guy. He's not out there in a nice, expensive suit, nor looking super cool and trendy. Got the tattoos in the right spot and the trendiest sneaks. He, he doesn't have any of that appearance. He really doesn't, if you think about it. He is the epitome of what? Plain. <laughs> He's the epitome of plain. I mean, there's nothing about John, when you look at him, where he has this uh, uh, public presentation. He doesn't have a, a good stage image with great magnetism. He's not the kind of guy with stage presence and charisma that's going to captivate an audience and be extremely you know, interesting, the kind of guy that, you, you, hey, you pick that guy for the public face of your company or your congregation, as I wonder sometimes if people do that these days. That's, that's the guy. He's our Geico lizard. You know, I mean, I just, that might have been a carnal joke. Forgive me, Lord. Again, John has no formal religious training, does he? He hasn't gone to the rabbinic schools of Jerusalem with the rabbis and the priests. No formal education, and his diet, a simple lifestyle, locusts and wild honey. I mean, if he's got a beard like many of the Jewish men in that day, he's, you know, honey in his beard, maybe a grasshopper leg in it. I mean, this is what John looks like, seriously. And yet, please think about it, folks, that unlikely man 
who had a right heart, that's who God selected. That's who God selected. He selects the most unordinary individual you know, that, that anybody could have imagined for this very important role to be the forerunner of the Son of God. But is it not true? We see all throughout the Word of God and in, in church history as well the reality that oftentimes the most unlikely individuals is who God ends up utilizing to best indicate why. Like Corinthians says that God chooses the foolish things of the world. He uses the weak things of the world. Why? So that no flesh would glory in his presence. And so that we would recognize that is just that's happening by the power of God through a weak human individual. But the glory stays to God, and it's evident that God is doing it. And notice what God's servant was doing. What's John doing? Verse 4 tells us. Look at it. It says, he came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism to people of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, I think John likely discovered his personal calling out in the wilderness, reading, my personal conviction, I could be wrong, reading Isaiah 40 and reading Malachi chapter 3, and as the Spirit's confirming his call, the word of God, there it is, and, and, and the two are lining up. The Spirit's calling is upon his life from birth. He's reading the word of God, and notice, what does John do? Well, John does, again, something very unorthodox, if you're trying to really get something launched here. He operates according to the word of God, and he really doesn't utilize, you might say, a very strategic approach. He doesn't formulate a grand vision to start his ministry as the messenger and the forerunner of Christ. Again, he doesn't go into the large capital city of Jerusalem where all of the population base was, where all of the deep pockets and money were. What does he do? He goes out into the Mideastern, hot, Judean, desert-like wilderness, and there he is out in that area, the place where you're thinking, that is the least chance you're going to have success. And he goes into that location in the Judean wilderness at the dirty Jordan River, and he starts preaching the truth of God, just proclaiming the message of God to the people that are there, offering this unique water baptism that represented or identified being repentant and turning from one's sins for the removal, the remission of sins that is getting ready to receive forgiveness and having one's sins removed. Now, water baptism even prior to what we think of today as Christian water baptism, when we are baptized to represent our commitment to Christ, water baptism has always been just an act of public identification. It's a way that a person would publicly declare where they stood. It was an opportunity to openly identify outwardly to people what you believed in your mind and what was going on in your heart. It was a way to outwardly show people what was your condition inwardly. So in this case, it was a way to show and declare this baptism of repentance, one's desire to turn away from sin, to turn away from living wrong, and to get oneself ready for this coming one and the forgiveness that he would bring. He says it's a baptism for the repentance of the remission of sins. Repentance important term as well that we don't misconstrue in this day and age. Repentance is not, I'm sad and I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. It's not remorse. Sadness and remorse is a part of repentance, but the reality is someone can be repentant and never shed a tear. 
Someone also can shed tons of tears and cry and weep and prove that they're really not repentant. Repentance, biblical repentance, the term and really the outworking of it in Scripture is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction and a change of behavior. It's an I've been going north and I take an about face and now I can start going south. That's repentance. Repentance is more something that's seen than it is something spoken about. So it's that turning from sin that was important, and they needed to turn from sin and repent as Jesus was about to come. Why? Because sin's displeasing to God. Sin separates us from God. So God, John was telling the people, look, I, I'm offering you the opportunity to repent and to be baptized and to show your repentance to declare that you want to turn away from sin to be able to turn to God and to receive the remission of your sins, the forgiveness of sins that God will bring to you through Jesus. And that was crucial because engaging in sin is the exact opposite of experiencing God. So he's telling them, you must turn away, you must repent. The other gospels tell us a little bit of some of what John was actually declaring. Matthew 3 says that John was preaching saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is upon us. Repent, turn away, get ready. Luke 3 tells us that John, when the multitudes came out to be baptized, was saying the following to them. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Notice, repentance has fruit. Bear fruit worthy of real repentance, he said. And don't begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. This would be their way of saying, we're religious. We might say today, I'm Methodist. I'm a Catholic. Uh, you know, I, I'm a Baptist. And he would say, that we're of Abraham. We're, we're Jews. We're, we're of the nation of Israel. He said, for I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked, what shall we do then? That's how you can tell repentance is happening. People say, what do I do? I want to change. What shall we do? To which John said, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. In other words, stop being selfish. Then the tax collectors came and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, stop lying. Stop cheating people. Stop taking advantage of people. Likewise, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. And what shall we do? Don't intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. It tells us, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Notice John's message was a pretty strong rebuke to man's selfishness to the spiritual apathy among the lives of the people. And it was challenging people to get right with God and to turn from sin and to seek God's mercy and to be ready to embrace and encounter the Lord. And please notice with me, if you would here, folks, God's, and I emphasize God, God's chosen method when he was working spiritually. Do you notice how it's happening? It is happening through the ministry of preaching, through preaching, through the proclamation of the truth of God and God's word 
by one human voice being led of the Spirit of God, speaking into the ears and the hearts of other human beings through face-to-face human interaction. Look, we live in a day and age, and I'm going to be sensitive here, where we have cleverly invented many other means to communicate spiritual truths. We all have all these creative outreach programs that we do now because you got to do the right program to connect with the people to have a chance to talk to them about the Lord. And we, we have all these creative methods we use. I mean, we have utilized you know, media platforms and, and technology and, and all the different things that we have learned to cleverly use, you know, media productions and video series and dramas and plays and movies, and, and we use all these other clever things. But can I just say, Titus 1 says that God manifested his word through preaching. And that's not what I'm doing this morning. Preaching just means proclaiming truth. It means announcing something. And the reason why that is God's chosen method to proclaim truth above and beyond any other little human thing that we may try and do is because of this, every human being can do that. I can't create a movie series. I can't do, but I can talk to a person. We can all go into the world and preach the gospel and talk to people about Jesus and share the word of God, that is God's primary method. I would say it's his chosen method, the biblical foremost method to proclaim truth. Now, if that angers you, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to knock on things that even currently people are very excited about. But just speaking to people. Maybe if we were all speaking to people, we wouldn't even need all the other stuff. I don't know but maybe it's God's exhortation to us. Tony, repent. When's the last time you talked to a person about Jesus? Ouch, Lord. Maybe I'm not doing my part. And again, God's method through John, he was just preaching and speaking to the people around him. And look what's happening by the Spirit of God in response to John's ministry. John's just preaching the truth. Look at verse 5. All the land of Judea, the whole region, Those from the city of Jerusalem, they went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So the religious people from Jerusalem, all over the region of Judea, would be kind of like a county we might refer to. They're being stirred by God's spirit. They're being drawn into the wilderness of the Jordan River and they're responding to God. And look, they've not been drawn by anything that John's offering out there. It's not, did you hear what John's offering at seven o'clock out there? He wasn't offering anything. <laughs> he was offering God. That's all he was offering. There, there was nothing to draw them out. No fancy advertising techniques. They went out where a work of God was unfolding because they were genuinely being drawn. We can't discount it. They were genuinely being drawn by the Spirit of God. It was just the Spirit of God that was drawing the people out to where he was. And multitudes, it says there, many were being baptized in this repentance and indication that they wanted to turn from their sin. And it says, even verse 5 there, look what it says. It says, many were confessing their sins. The word confess in the Greek just means to say the same thing in agreement. So genuine confession of sin means to simply agree with God's word without making any excuse or justification in what we're doing wrong. That's what confession is. 
God, you are right. What I am doing is wrong. My attitude in this or my action, what I... That's confession. Acknowledging, God, you are right, and I agree with you. And they were confessing their sins. And not only were they openly admitting their sins, they were abandoning their sins, turning away, getting away from those wrong ways. And again, look at this picture, folks. Here is a biblical application point to understand what I would call a genuine work of God unfolding by the move of God's Spirit in that day. And notice, again, please, it did not require, didn't require working strategically to create a special environment that people would like in this generation. That's not what's going on here. It has nothing to do with creating an atmosphere through a production meeting of what do we need to create as far as an exciting, enjoyable, stirring experience that really connects with people in today's generation. None of that is going on. In fact, everything about this ministry work, from the person doing it to the place that they're doing it to the process of how they're going about it, everything about it there is missing all the strategic visionary planning. <laughs> it's, it's missing all of it. It has nothing to do. I, I mean, the central instrument being used there, as I said, very plain, not impressive. The face of the company, he's not like a rock star. It's John. That's not the, the, the one who's doing this. doesn't have a magnetic personality to entertain those coming and keep them coming back. The ministry location where it's happening, not the best choice, right? I mean, they're out in a hot Judean wilderness at a dirty Jordan River. They don't even have somebody's nice, clean pool with chlorine in it to baptize some people. I mean, everything's wrong about this. I mean, the location where they're at, again, no cool facility, no professional colored lights and haze machines. And then the fancy lights, they go back and forth like this, you know, like, like Star Wars. Why? None of that's there. there. There's no technographic professional experience going on. There's no rockin' concert. There's no swank cafe bar. I mean, none of that. There, there's none of that's here. It's a 15-mile walk on foot, at least, or more, to get from Jerusalem out there to where they were in a dirty Jordan River, and on top of it, John is preaching a really hard message. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard message John's preaching. He was not talking about find your inward winner. That's not what John was preaching. He was saying hard things, yet as God works... It's apart from all those other worldly things, and many are being drawn, and they're not coming for just a spiritual pep rally of excitement, and the crowds are there, and the building on the momentum and the enthusiasm. They're coming for God's presence. They're coming for God's presence alone. There's no fun, entertaining thing. This was a genuine move of the Spirit of God. It's something you can't explain how it came to pass. There is no description of how and why it took place. It's not something you can manufacture by just setting the mood right in the room. It's not something that you can duplicate to experience somewhere else by going and finding out the method and the model and then trying to bring it out and, and duplicate. None of that here. This is just a sovereign thing of the Spirit of God rooted in what? The Word of God rooted in the presence of God, 
and that God's Spirit is doing as people are coming and they're responding to God, they're admitting their sin, they're abandoning their sin, they want to be right with God, and they want to learn God's Word, and they want to embrace and encounter God in a personal way. And what a beautiful thing. I'll tell you, in the church today and in all of our own personal lives, that's the kind of thing that we should desire. That's what we should be desiring. And that is something that we should be looking for to evaluate how do we know when a genuine work of God is unfolding. Well, there's one of many biblical examples right there to help us to recognize it. Well, notice the message finally, verse 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not, he says, worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you, John says, with the Holy Spirit. Notice the message of God was putting attention upon who? Jesus. Connecting people with Jesus. I mean, John's humility, again, is displayed here so very beautifully in verse 7 as the Lord's spokesman and servant. John truly saw himself as nothing other than what he was supposed to be, a voice. And voices are something that are heard not seen. And John said, that's all I am. I'm just a voice. I just want to be God's voice, the conduit to be able to say clearly and accurately what God is trying to say by his voice to speak to his people. I wonder if as things were getting stirred, you know, human nature and all this is happening. And you read John 1 and John 3 and other places, and you could tell people were almost kind of like they were, they were starting to, to get psyched about John. And every time you look at John's words, John 1, he's always deflecting attention away from himself and behold the Lamb of God. He's putting it back on Jesus. Even here, John says, look, he says, verse 7, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and touch his sandal strap. I'm just a lowly, lowly, humble servant. John would say, I must decrease, he must increase. That was always his heart. And what a beautiful picture as the Lord's servants, a beautiful attitude of humility that we all should aspire towards. I love Luke 17, where it describes there Jesus saying, when you've done everything that you were told to do, you should simply say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And just that humility in that and how God worked through that. Jesus said among those born of women, there was none greater than John, but look at John's ministry in the gospels. John never did a miracle. He never did a sign and wonder. He did one thing. He stood out of the way, and he just kept trying to point people to Jesus. And he helped people get connected to the Lord. And he describes in verse 8 there how Jesus describes to bring a much greater power into their lives. John says, I may baptize you with water, but he will, when he comes, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John wanted people to understand and expectantly look for what Jesus could impart a much more powerful experience. John understood what he was doing, baptizing in water, was just a prelude to what Jesus would do in his spiritual baptism. John, in essence, says in verse 8, look, in the same way I'm immersing you down into the water, and the water completely covers you, and when you come up out of the water, your condition's been changed because you went underwater. And John says, in the same way, there is a spiritual baptism from Jesus where your life is deeply immersed, submerged into the power of the Spirit of God, and your condition is changed. Where you experience a spiritual baptism. 
You know, after Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, the Bible tells us in his glorified body, he then ministered on the earth for 40 days before he ascended back into heaven. During which time, before he ascended back into heaven, he imparted the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John 20 says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit of God. They had the Holy Spirit. Well, then right before Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, it tells us there, right before Jesus went back into heaven and the church age was to begin, that Jesus told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait a minute, they already have the Spirit of God indwelling them. But Jesus said you will be baptized, immersed to where your condition is transformed and changed when you experience this baptism with the Holy Spirit. They said, Lord, are you going to bring the kingdom back now? Can you give us another prophecy lesson? Jesus said, let's not talk about that. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, folks, notice, who's the baptizer? Jesus. Who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. What an important thing to recognize. Look, today, perhaps you desire to see a fresh work of the Lord begin in your life, begin in your family, begin in this church where there's greater fruitfulness and power and influence and life change Do you know, here's an important beginning to realize it is never going to come by more clever human tactics and efforts. The only way it will ever transpire is by the Spirit of the Lord supernaturally bringing it to pass. I love 1 uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. There it says this, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be turned into another man. Beautiful. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Who's the baptizer? Jesus. How wonderful that we can know that is what Jesus wants to do to let us experience a baptism with his spirit to have supernatural power from on high for our lives. Let's stand together and let's pray.